Well, I wouldn't say that Brandon is a fascist, in spite no, of my no, Brandon, uh, no, 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 that's what I announced, but as I explained yesterday, I will skip Schiller, because it simply, you can enjoy it only if you know Schiller. All right, can I offer another provocation, actually, which is closer to home, another reading, and uh, I'm thinking of uh, the, uh, the director of the Institute of uh, Humanities, who's actually now a citizen MP, and he just brought out an article in a Greek radical newspaper called Kokino, which means red, and the, type, the, the, the article that Costas wrote is entitled The Coming of History, and he's precisely using Hegel uh, to suggest that any of us who are um, uh, suggesting that Tsipras should not have taken in and should, the Syriza government should not be imposing anti-austerity uh, measures are actually behaving like beautiful souls and we should not buckle up behind Tsipras. So he's using Hegel to say that all the critics of Syriza are behaving like you know, uh, beautiful souls and we don't want to get our hands dirty. So it's another thing that you could address maybe mm. tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow. no, 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 no. I decided because I got some... Uh, murmurs back from you, from some of you, my anonymous spies, who told me that like some of you were dissatisfied and in a quite justified way, like, where is Hegel? I'm just giving you these confused political stories. Okay, I decided then, fuck you up yours today and tomorrow you get only Hegel. And a lot of Hegel, you know. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I would just like to reply something because I want precisely to share this with you. As if he's Maybe he has also spies here. Are you a double trade agent? Are you also Costas' his spy? Because this morning I got a long email from Costas claiming that I should come to Athens, appear publicly with Tsipras. I hope, he hopes I'm still there and that I don't believe these lies by Varoufakis and so on and so on. Now, what I wanted to doubt, but now I learned from you and from others, I checked it up, something which is even much worse, at least for my taste. Okay, maybe, I don't agree with it. You can justify surrendering to EU, my God, they can ruin you, whatever. But in the last weeks, the Greek government, especially Tsipras, did some things which I find really intolerable, and which has nothing to do, which have nothing to do with pressures of some European technocrats. First, he recently visited Israel, spent three days with Netanyahu, and proclaimed publicly that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people, something that even pro-Israeli Western countries do not do. And also you told me and others that he concluded some shady deals about shared military maneuvers and so on. Now, you know that I'm often critical of Palestinians' anti-Semitism and so on. I have a certain understanding for the Jewish position, but to do this, it's going a little bit too far. To become friendly with 
the well-known Holocaust revisionist Netanyahu, no? <laughs> this is simply too far. Second thing, I don't like how he's playing what I see on the horizon is what in European terms we would have called uh, 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 a historical compromise between radical left and radical right. More and more often, it sounds like this economic nationalism. You have connections with the church. All the time you can see Tsipras with the patriarch of the Greek church, and Greek church played in Greece. Very problematic, extremely national position. I was triggered. I became attentive to it already half a year ago, even more, when Tsipras visited Serbia. Nothing against. But the things he did there, appearing with Serb Orthodox Patriarch, who is a well-known Serb extreme nationalist, and uh, making statements which are, to put it mildly, absolutely not neutral. Now, I can understand in some vague way why he did this. He, he knows that he can be attacked from the right as non-patriotic, as usually leftists are, so, how do you say it in this football or whatever terms? He wants to protect his right-wing flank or whatever, you know. But nonetheless, to play this game, where effectively, I think, at the end of a horizon, it's Marine Le Pen. I, I predict you, if it will go this way at the end, we will have the two big, you know, that's the, the two big pro-worker. Because also Marine Le Pen, her entire rhetoric is now pro-working class rhetoric. This is the big danger now. That because of these experiences with Europe, bad experiences, we withdraw to some pseudo-working class, subtly anti-immigrant uh, nationalism. And the more and more I notice in Syriza this nationalist uh, temptation. This is why, you know, when they attacked other countries, this is what I noted already before. I mean, when Syriza was coming to power, how insensitive they were to this argument, which you can answer them. But again, my old motive, these are the worries of ordinary people that you have to respond to. For example, in many post-communist East European countries, including mine, which are politically bullshit, I am ashamed to be from that part of the world. But they asked some questions which, of course, from the standpoint of ordinary people, are reasonable. Like, the Greeks went off strike of for, uh, they want, uh, uh, how to put it, to, to, uh, to make longer, the, uh, to move forward the age when you can take retirement long. But okay, of course, all the right-wingers with us immediately pointed out that in Slovenia, the age of when you can retire is still much higher than the age proposed now by Greece, and that the average retirement pension, although the prices are higher in Slovenia, the prices are practically the same as Austria and Italy, and the, uh, the, the how do you call it, pensions, retirement, what you get on average, is still, in spite of all these reductions, lower than in Greece. Now, you can answer this. Varoufakis gave me a nice answer, which is that because of a specific situation of Greece, where you have many people unemployed, mid-generation, and he claimed there are over one million, two million cases of this, and that uh, there are, again, 
over a million of families which now all have to rely on, on pension. Because you know, the old retired people have to somehow, okay, but you should reply to this, you know. Otherwise, and no, they, like when I mentioned this to Kostas, he started to shout at me in his way, you know, uh, you, are, you are listening to your Catholic fascist propaganda and so on and so on, you know. Like they, they should have shown a little bit more of sensibility towards these uh, post-communist countries, which are effectively even a little bit more miserable than Greece. You know, like, this is solidarity, you know. Greece maybe tried to play too much of this role of, you know, exemplary victims, how should I put it? They were the big victim of Europe. Yes, they were. The shock was incredible. I admit it. No other country in Europe had such a sudden drop in the standard of living. But, you know, like, uh, it's not as simple as that. Okay, th with this I will conclude, you know. Now let's finally, finally go to do some real work. Uh, but I warn you, there will be a price you will pay for it. Practically, if I remember correctly, no joke, especially no dirty jokes and so on, you know, so that's life, no? All I can tell you is, if you have free time to watch TV, download. You can do it from Kick-Ass or uh, what's the other one, the big one, Pirate Bay, for free. Uh, you know the man in the high castle, that famous uh, Ballard uh, science fiction novel, alternate reality, Germany and uh, Japan won, World War II and United States are divided, eastern part. German state, pro-German state, western part, Japanese state, in the middle, some kind of a buffer zone. And uh, it's a pretty good series. I know they did it in this new Netflix way, I like it, that they released all of a sudden the entire season, 10 times one hour. And uh, here you can see that Julian Assange is not a total idiot. When I visited him two years ago, uh, two, two days ago, what is this Freudian sleep, I don't know, we debated it. And he told me, he also saw it and knew the novel, that in the novel there is an extremely subtle trick. Because, you know, the whole game is this one. It's, of course, this typical postmodern, almost today, self-reference, that uh, within this universe there is, in the novel, a novelist. He is the man on the high castle. And in the TV series they made it into some mysterious movie maker who distributes documentaries, pseudo-documentaries, which tell what is for us the true story of the World War II? That, uh, you know, Germany lost, all, all the stuff, like our real history. Now, of course, the obvious question is, and you have wait till the end of the novel, and here they didn't yet decide, what is reality? Is it that we will learn that this alternate reality where Germany won and so on is just a dream? Or is our world? And Assange gave me a formula which helped me. It's a totally different one. It's that if you listen carefully, at least in the novel, to what that novel within the novel, written by Men in the High Castle, says, it's not simply our reality. There are subtle differences. It's neither, of course, it's not that reality of the novel, Japan and Germany won, but it's also not our reality. It's a third reality, totally fictitious. And I'm tempted to read it in Lacanian way. That's the real. It's an inexisting virtual real. And it is as if this is the platonic real. 
die ideal true world en our miserable, our reality is one reality. The alternate reality imagined is another one, but we are all miserable copies of the real, which is that world which, again, is, it doesn't exist. I mean, it's, uh, it's a good reading, so again, maybe Assange is, because now he's so desperate, he told me what can he do in that fucking Ecuador embassy. I mean, all my gratitude to Ecuador. By fucking, I mean, it's really a, not even a large apartment, you know. And he says, poor Julian, he started to watch TV series. <laughs> he knows everything, homeland, uh, this and so on, no? So this is it. Okay, sorry, now we go to real world and, okay, enough of jokes, Hegel. Uh, Hegel is a notoriously, that's the rumor, difficult writer. Although, if you read Kant, you may have no, also Kant, Kant, critique of pure reason and so on, you may have noticed that grammatically Hegel is relatively easy, that grammatically Kant is a nightmare, which is why, as many German interpreters of Kant admit it, you, by you I mean the English-speaking thinkers or whatever, have the luck of having excellent especially David Kemp Smith and others, translation of Kant, which are, to cut a long story short, better than the German original. The, you know, because Kant is like Kleist in literature. His sentences are always one page, the entire page, <laughs> no? And Kemp Smith, in a masterful way, cut them short into three, four sentences, not only not losing anything in the logic, but making it, making it even clearer. With Hegel, it's on the contrary. Usually the grammatical structure is pretty much a simple one, but the thought eludes you. So, a difficult writer. Many of his statements, we know this, run against our common sense and cannot but appear as crazy speculations. So, as I already hinted at yesterday, Brandom attempts to, let's call this, renormalize Hegel to demonstrate how Hegel's, even Hegel's most extravagant formulations, when properly reinterpreted, make sense in our common space of meaning. Again, as I emphasized yesterday, I highly appreciate Brandom's attempt. It is a model of clear argumentative reasoning. Like, she was mad yesterday when I said, uh, you are evil because you are not stupid, or whatever I said yesterday, no? I mean, Brandom even more. He is not a complete idiot. I, uh, I don't mean that we are some who are not idiots. There are only two kinds of people, everybody knows. Complete idiots and not complete idiots. There is no <laughs> third kind. But uh, nonetheless, I think that this domestication of Hegel doesn't work. Yes, we should translate Hegel into, and it can be done wonderfully. We should translate Hegel into our, somehow, to render it clear, okay? But not by way of losing his madness. Certain excess is getting reduced there. If we will have time tomorrow, but I want to give you a hint of this. Sometimes things are even very simple here. The old example that I use of what Hegel calls infinite judgment, where the subject and predicate are totally at odds. You simply don't see the connection. For example, an extremely simple exemption. Der uh, uh, Geist ist ein Knochen. Spirit that I use all the time. Spirit is a bone. 
And Hegel says that this is not just some kind of dialectical contrast, like in reality we know spirit is the most ethereal, movable thing, spirit is not just a bone. No, Hegel's point, because then if this is true, why, why do we have to pass through this paradox? Why don't we directly say spirit is the opposite of a bone? A bone is the most stupid, lifeless, uh, uh, inert part of the human body. Why, so why not saying it directly? Spirit is the very opposite of bone. Bone is dead, inert. Spirit is pure self-relating, flexibility, and so on and so on. Why is this an infinite judgment? Well, the answer of Hegel is very simple here. It's that uh, I will give you also then the next answer which raises. Uh, what, uh, as Hegel says in a very Deridean way, and Derrida was not as some of his stupid followers, Derrida was well aware, he once said, this is wonderful, and I repeat, I said this here openly, that there is nothing as close to what he calls the construction as the Hegelian Aufhebung, sublation, and so on. Derrida was fully aware of the almost infinite proximity between, between what he is doing and Hegel. Derrida was far from this dismissing Hegel as some crazy idealist who thinks everything is in his thought or whatever. So again, you know the Derridian motive of failure, repetition, and so on. And Hegel says this literally. An infinite judgment is a judgment which stops you. It, its first experience is necessarily a failure. It doesn't work. Like spirit is, you expect some high definition, the most developed part of nature, the effect of extremely complex blah, blah. Then you get spirit is a bone. It doesn't work. It's a radical gap. And what would be here Hegelian answer? Again, what you experience is a radical gap in possibility and so on. This gap is subject. You know, literally, then you get all these wonderful speculative formulas in what sense spirit if its own self-negation and so on. And uh, so I hope you will get it now. It's an extremely simple example, but nonetheless. Uh, why is then, do we have to begin with spirit is a bone? Why not saying spirit is the very opposite of a bone? Because if you just say spirit is the very opposite of a bone, you automatically presuppose a certain field of reality where there are different objects. And you know, spirit is one type of object, totally different, bone is another type of object. But uh, Hegel is here a materialist. When he says spirit is a bone, or as Lacan put it somewhere, in the uh, subject is what is not an object. But this negation is inherent to the object. It's a very subtle point. It's not that object is here, subject is there. Object cannot be fully an object, and this inner break, disparity, however we call it, of, of object is subject. This is what you lose when you go directly at it and said spirit is not a bone. No, the truth of the subject is not, or spirit is not, spirit is not a bone. But you have to say spirit is a bone and then you experience the absurdity of this statement and this absurdity is what Hegel calls negativity and so on and so on. You know, it's this wonderful logic that I... Uh, developed in all my books, repeating old jokes, which is I will do now, where 
you, uh, you arrive at a result only through the failure. The failure is never simply a failure. It's a failure, but it's a, like the old joke. I must have uh, tell it, is, but I still like it from, it was a Yugoslav army joke. You know, a guy pretends to be a madman, and he, what is his symptom? That whenever he, wherever he goes, he looks at every paper and says, this is not that. Tony Ono, this is not that, this is not that. Then they say, oh my God, he appears crazy. Okay, a group of doctors examined him. Again, there, in the, he says, this is not dead, looks all the papers. And then, okay, you know the joke probably. At the end, they get him the paper which excuses him from military service. He looks at it and says, this is dead. You know, <laughs> it's so stupid, but you see the point. The object that is dead emerges only through his, this is not that, and so on. This is, I think, the best metaphor, maybe, of the Hegelian speculative process. Or another example that I often mentioned here. <coughs> Sorry if I'm repeating all points. Uh, uh, it's my old story with Judith Butler, and she doesn't like me repeating it, which is why I'm repeating it, of course. I'm an evil guy. Uh, the problem of apologizing. You know the story. I repeat a couple how. Once I was a little bit rude towards Judith, and then later I called him and apologized, and she told me, Slavoj, I know what you are, you didn't mean it bad, uh, uh, you need not to apologize. And my immediate temptation was to say, okay, then I withdraw my apology. And, but of course, but you see the subtlety of it. This is in a way what Hegel is about. Yes, for her to say, Slavoj, you don't really... I don't really, you don't really need to apologize, was a nice way to accept the apology. Because you get the subtlety. If she were to say, yes, fuck you, you were so rude, I deserved an apology, this would have meant that he really, she really did not pardon me, that she is still bitter. So the you see the nice paradox? Uh, something appears at the end as superfluous. You didn't need to apologize me. But... You have to do a thing for it to appear superfluous. Like, you cannot go directly to it. So, you know, this is, I hope you sense this, a totally different logic from this common sense evolutionism. There are necessary stages of evolution. No, apology is not simply a necessary step. It is necessary, but the whole trick is that retroactively it appears superfluous. And it's the same, we will talk about this when we will debate, hopefully later today, all this Hegelian topic of necessary, unnecessary consequences. Because, uh, for example, people often don't get this in Hegel. In Hegel's critique of French Revolution, I'm sorry, another old motive by me, uh, uh, they think it like this. Stupid Frenchmen have chosen revolutionary terror which means death, abstract negativity, self-destruction. Rational Germans go for state of reason, organic structure, blah, blah. But that's not Hegel's point. Of course, he admits revolutionary terror, I doubt this, it's more complex, was a deadlock. But Hegel's point is that, you know, like, I put it like this, that's the elegance of Hegel. In the choice between terror and rational state, of course, Terror is a false choice, but you have to begin through it. You cannot go directly at the rational state. So this is a beautiful position. Hegel was not the liberal who, 
whose notion is to cut it short, we want, uh, we want 89 against 93. You know, the first phase of the French Revolution was okay then, when for me at least all the fun began, chop, chop, you know. No, you know why I say all fun began? Because look just at the statistics, how many people died. The whole problem of revolutionary terror was that they chopped off some of the heads of those up there, the rich. If you look at how many ordinary people were killed, of three, the three weeks of Thermidor after it was uh, after Robespierre and Jacobins were overthrown, more people were killed, but nobody notices. Nobody noticed that. It's all. But okay, what I want to say is that you see here the subtlety. Yes, terror was a blind alley, unnecessary, but at the same time you have to go through it. You have, like, it's a wrong choice, it's like that. It is not that, that paper. Only through the wrong choice, the true choice. Uh, sorry, the truth disappears. It's this subtle paradox which, to put it more in Lacanian terms, are you aware that in this way, temporality is involved in logic? The point is that the moment you are dealing with this choice, you don't simply, you don't simply have a choice. But you can only do it with a double choice, you know? Like, you can, you make the right choice, but only after the wrong choice. Because only the wrong choice establishes the conditions for the right choice. And in the same way, I claim Stalinism and Leninism, if I will have time, I will return to this later today, if not today, tomorrow, should be read. Uh, the way, I'm jumping ahead now, the way Brandom reads Hegel in this question is he refers in a very elegant way. He refers to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to sorry, to uh, his uh, 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 distinction between the Greek antique notion of fate and the modern Kantian notion. You know that in Greece, in Greece universe, Oedipus. Something happens, which is uh, Oedipus is guilty, although it was not his intention. He is nonetheless guilty. It was your fate. You didn't have a choice. He didn't know he is killing his father, screwing his mother, but nonetheless, he is guilty. You are guilty even if you don't know it. That is to say, you are guilty, responsible also for the objective, non-intended consequences of your act. The Kantian logic, at least superficially, is the opposite one. It's the famous internalization. You are guilty only for uh, what your intention was. Like for Kant, to cut a long story short, Oedipus was innocent. He thought there is just an annoying, okay, maybe it was not totally just, but he was not certainly guilty of, for certain, guilty of killing his father. You know, it was just, he saw a stranger there, the stranger behaved in a rude way, or I even forgot who was rude there, but uh, he killed. So, uh, but, uh, and then, Brandom tries to play both games. This is his naive Hegelian idealism. He claims that, in he wants to do a synthesis of the two, that, yes, we are, directly responsible only for intended consequences. But that in the larger scheme of things, I do something 
and something unexpected turns out that I did not intend. But he claims that up to a point he is right, but not really that. Hegel's wager, as it were, is that nonetheless, through all these failures, I wanted this, another thing happens. At the end, I established how I was nonetheless instrument of a higher rational reason. How precisely through my Precisely my failure to achieve my explicit goal realizes a higher goal. In this sense, you can have historical reconciliation. Okay, my problem here with Brandom is, uh, is uh, that he's not Hegelian enough. Why? Uh, first, the example he uses is a very interesting one. First, he is anti-Freudian. For him, Freudian psychoanalysis is an example of hermeneutics of suspicion, where you, the, you uh, dismiss subjective self-awareness as simply secondary, a tool, instrument of some other objective processes. Like, his reading is totally wrong, substantialist. Freud asserts the unconscious as some objective, transsubjective domain we have a master outside ourselves, which controls us. And for him, for Brandom, it's the same with Marx. Economy, social being, determines consciousness, which means what we think just comes secondary. It's just an effect of objective social processes, and so on, and so on. I will not go into it why this is wrong reading. A wrong reading, I claim, both of Marx and of Freud. With regard to Marx, ay, ay, ay. the whole point of capital critique of political economy is that the Marxist point is not to establish some objective economic domain which controls us, which is some kind of substantial other, but to show how this domain is also the domain of class struggle, which means of subjective engagement. You know this crucial detail here that the very last page of Capital, where the manuscript breaks, is class struggle at the end of what is now appears as volume three. And uh, I will not go into it. I repeated this often in my books, how it's exactly the same with the Freudian unconscious. It's not some kind of external substantiality. Freudian unconscious is an even higher degree of what Hegel calls self-consciousness. I will not go into it now. What I want to say is this, that where Brandon fails is how, because of this, look, Oedipus, I'm sorry to tell you, we are here with, uh, we are here in Freudian waters, incest and so on, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't even touch upon this problem. What if you intend something, but you were nonetheless somehow responsible for unintended consequences because, let's call it like this, the standard naive psychoanalytic reading. They were part of your unconscious motivations, even if you are not No wonder then that Brandom uses an extremely stupid example here. He says, and I like it, let's say I visit a friend and I press the button. The intention of me is just to ring the bell, obviously, no? But let's say, and I think this example is not neutral. It's so stupid in the spirit of our times. But there is an evil terrorist who, unknown to me, connected that button to, to some dynamite explosion. 
So I press the button and the whole house explodes. And of course, here it's easy to make the case how I'm responsible only for the intentional part of my act. I cannot be responsible for the bomb, for the explosion, but just for what was my intention. But you know, this is, I claim, a totally wrong example, because as Hegel would have put it, the two levels, my intention and the result, this is simply a radical external contingency. You know, what, but what about, I, you know that I still assert October Revolution, but nonetheless we should talk about these things. Isn't it too easy to say, as many honest communists would have put it, they meant well at the beginning, they meant really a new form of freedom, but the unintended consequence was Stalinist terror. Here things get complicated. I think that even if they really wanted just more freedom, the early Bolsheviks, and even Lenin in his late writings become aware of it or others, isn't it that somehow at least the potential for Stalinism was there? You know, that's the true tragedy, that the terrifying result, you cannot simply say, oh, I wanted it good, I'm not responsible. At some sense, it can be shown that you, that you are responsible. And then another problem here, where, uh, again, he ignores this topic, uh, Brandom. Another topic that he ignores is even more interesting one, the topic of so-called excessive economy. You know, basically, Brandom's position is that of naive Hegelianism. Horrible things happen, but at the end of the story, we see how they serve a good purpose. Okay, I'm here cynical. Let's apply this to, to I'm sorry, these eternally same examples. We could have used others, Gulag, uh, 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 colonial brutality and so on. Uh, uh, what would we do with Holocaust, Auschwitz and so on? Would you be ready to say that, that it was a tragedy, but in the higher sense, it's a part of a larger narrative where it serves a good purpose? Well, some Zionists may have put it like this, and there are, I met them. They claim it's very brutal reasoning that without Holocaust, there wouldn't have been a Jewish state of Israel. So I told them, okay, draw this to the end and put a monument to Hitler in Tel Aviv. Because isn't it in some naive sense true? Probably, maybe not, but probably. Without Hitler and the horror of Holocaust, international community would not have pushed, supported, uh, supported uh, Israel. Uh, now, isn't it that such a logic, in this way you can justify everything. Stalinist gulag, where it served the purpose of awakening us to idea of more human socialism or whatever. You can play this game. But uh, isn't it a little bit too brutal game? And I claim it's not the proper Hegelian game. The proper Hegelian game is that the story, the narrative which justifies an event, always comes afterwards. So we are never in a From the strict Hegelian point, the mistake of this reasoning is that you impute to history a kind of eternal abstract reason which 
from its teleological overview, decides Holocaust. Mm, it's risky. Many people will die, but on the other hand, there will be more awareness of the dangers of anti-Semitism. Jews, if God is pro-Jewish, that's another debate. Uh, Jews will get their state or whatever, so let's allow it. No, this is not what Hegel says. He's fully aware that the story comes with a delay afterwards. So uh, <coughs> Hegel's point is not that you can you can justify it retroactively, but you should underline retro retroactively. Horrors happen, and then we try to deal with them retroactively. But even this is too much for Brandom. He does something terrible here, totally non-Hegelian. He claims that Hegelian history, which retroactively afterwards tries to tell the rational narrative, that it doesn't report on all contingent events, but only on the rationally necessary events. Like it's kind of a histoire raisonné, how do they put it in French, you know. History freed of its contingent excesses where only the, the necessity of reason is rendered. But if you do this, you know, what then remains of the 20th century. You simply proclaim what? Holocaust and gulag and colonial horrors, it all began with, know oh, in, in whatever, uh, 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 Belgian Congo, other colonies. You simply say these were excesses, but in the rational order of things, colonization happened, the progress of civilization, or stupid things like this. Uh, I reject Brandom's version uh, because but also for another reason. Hegel doesn't ever, Hegel's strategy, it's not simply true what he's saying, is not to dismiss these extreme points as irrelevant. No, Hegel, for Hegel, these extreme catastrophes are always the truth of, like if Hegel of a movement, like if Hegel were to be alive in 45, his logic would not have been, oh, Holocaust was an accident and so on, but Holocaust brought out the inner destructive ability which was from the very beginning in fascism and so on. For Hegel, the extreme catastrophe always has the function of the truth. He never, he never, esca he never escapes from it, which is why Hegel's view of history is very pessimist, precisely when he asserts apparently optimism at the very end of the last famous last paragraph of phenomenology. You know, uh, when he said all of here, history is, how do you call this in German, Schädel, Schädel the, the site of cranes, of death bones, like that history is history of catastrophes, basically. So Hegel is not a naive optimist in the sense of whatever catastrophes we have, somehow they will be disclosed to be part of a global reason. No, Hegel's point is rather the opposite one. Whatever we do, we can be sure that things will turn wrong in some way, you know. And from this gap, maybe some third thing can, ima can emerge, but there is no, no a priori guarantee that will emerge. Hegel writes this summer, he is well aware, for example, that when Mongols or whoever, maybe I'm too Eurocentric here, but strategically accepted here, that 
that there was a deeper meaning in the Mongol invasion of Arab world, you know, and Eastern Europe. No, there was no deeper meaning there. Nothing emerged out of there, just destruction and so on. Okay, but uh, let me follow the line here, back to the beginning. What Brandon leaves behind, this is the first more difficult uh, philosophical point, what Brandon leaves behind in his renormalization of Hegel is primarily the dimension of self-relating, which is absolutely fundamental for Hegel in German Selbstbeziehung. Let's take two basic Hegelian concepts, bestimmte negation, determinate negation, and mediation, vermittlung. Brandom interprets them as simply the series of exclusions and inclusions that constitute the identity of every object. Like, determinate negation means that if the chair I'm sitting on is made of plastic, then it is not made of metal or of wood and so on. It's simply that having some actual particular property excludes other properties within the same species. Like, again, if metallic, then not wooden, then not plastic, and so on. Or if blue, then not brown, then not gray, and so on, and so on. And mediation, in Brandom's reading, simply relates to the, uh, the intricate relation of this object to other objects and processes. For example, let's return to the case of this chair. Of course, the truth of this chair is not simply that it's this particular chair. But how was this chair possible? It presupposes the development of human industry. Probably it presupposes, I don't know from where the parts come, the mines, probably a vast network of international relations and so on and so on. Probably even some colonial stuff uh, and so on. So the point is that to see what a particular thing is, you have to see it in its mediation. Or a more, uh, an example which is more easy for me to to present. I smoke a cigarette. I don't, but my wife does. And I love her for that because uh, she is like two to three packages per day, you know. And speaking about Greece, we should turn a big propaganda for, how do you call Creta, Crete, the island. I read some statistics that people of Crete have lived the longest age in Greece, on average over 80, and they are the greatest smokers, you know. Like, <laughs> fuck the politically correct attack. <laughs> no, I really hate leftists who are totally against smoking. I am, I, I know tobacco. But then, almost in the same breath, they want total freedom, decriminalization of drugs. And whatever drugs are, they are a little bit more dangerous than, than smoke, you know. This is another, I claim, weird strategy. Of the, okay, but let me go on. Okay, uh, so uh, you got it. This is how Brandom reads the Hegelian mediation. That it simply, each thing to get it, what it really is, has to be located in, like, we all know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think so, that tobacco came from... America, Latin America, no? So, in other words, no tobacco without colonization, and the story of Latin America is wonderful here. You know that tomato comes from Latin America. 
And you know why it was introduced? War. Uh, the big popularizer of tomato was uh, Friedrich der Grosse, Frederick the Great. After the catastrophes of war, they discovered that tomato grows, uh, sorry, not tomato, potato, of course, <laughs> <laughs> potato. Rewrite history in a Stalinist way. Okay, that, that potato, it, you know, if you have a desolate countryside and you have to feed fast to feed population, the fastest way is with potato. It's as simple as that, which is why, again, Germans become potato eaters, and they really are. I discovered in Berlin, because I like potato, three kartoffel restaurant, you know, where you get like 200 dishes, all. It's like some perverse guide, the sad, you know, you can fuck in this way, in that way, there you can do perversions of, of potato. <laughs> so, but, okay, we have colonization, we have European wars, you see, all the historical background which is needed to account for this stupid object. <coughs> Potato. I claim that this is not enough. First, uh, concerning this inclusion and exclusion, what Brandon is shocking totally misses is, again, the relationship of, uh, of self, what, uh, what Hegel calls self-exclusion, like the whole problem Hegel is struggling with is that uh, in the second chapter of phenomenology on does think, the thing, and its properties, is that the thing, let's say this table, it's a thing, an object, it's one, and it has multiple properties, wood, wooden top, or this is rather some shitty plastic, uh, uh, metal legs, or whatever. So Hegel's problem is precisely the relationship between one and multiple. And his point is that it's not simply what is excluded. It's not simply other properties, like if this color, if the color of this table is gray, it excludes red, uh, brown, or blue, or whatever. If it's metallic, it excludes wood, and so on. No, what interests Hegel is self-exclusion, in the sense of the relative autonomy of the one against, with regard to its own properties, an autonomy which is actualized precisely in the oneness, being one of the human person. Hegel's point is that you are one as a human person. When you are reduced to that Cartesian cogito, I am the one where you abstract all properties. So the idea is, no, to what extent we have in every object this structure of self-exclusion, of the tension between its being one and its multiple properties. This dimension is totally missing, and it's the same with mediation. Uh, Brandom, like Pippin, unfortunately, remains in this eternal oscillation between Vermittlung and Unmittelbares, between mediation and immediacy. The, of course, with every immediate object, immediate is, let's remain at the level of common sense, what we immediately perceive, with, in relation with every immediate object, of course, we first immediately perceive it as self-identical. This table is here. 
Then we do that bullshit of mediation that I explained to you. This table is here, but it presupposes forest industry, mining, human developing, factories, world market, whatever. <coughs> but <coughs> uh, as Brandon points out, here he is correct, but doesn't develop the line of thought to the end. Uh, but this immediacy, in this mediation, in order to work, has to re refer to other immediacies. Like, I, this table is dependent on mining. Okay, then I have the immediacy of mining, of a certain mine or whatever, you know, or I don't know, forest. Okay, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you never get at, uh, at the network of mediation, the network which just stands in the air. That should you have this multiple play. Every immediacy can be resolved in a network of mediations, but this network of mediations, mediations are always mediations between this and that. They again had to point at certain uh, immediacies, and uh, Brandom and Pippin simply com complain and conclude that Hegel reaches here a deadlock. It's kind of endless play. Every me immediacy points to mediation, every mediation to immediacy. What they don't see is that uh, 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 that the crucial point for Hegel is what he calls directly the immediacy of mediation. That is to say that mediation can come to itself, not in the form of other particular objects, but what? Again, think about the ego. Here is a passage from Hegel's Phenomenology, for the preface. The ego, or becoming in general, this process of mediating is, because of its being simply, just immediacy coming to be, and this immediacy itself. So Hegel's point is that what is our spirit, our ego? It's just a pure process of mediating, the process of thinking. But the moment we perceive it as I, we don't return to another simple immediacy. That would have been only, I don't know if you identify uh, neurons, if you're, but when we feel ourselves ourselves as self-identical, this is immediacy of the process of mediation itself. Or, to put it in another way, uh, 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 what a Brandom, it's strange how he doesn't see it, is uh, how, if you go to the other notion, determinate negation, Brandom almost literally quotes this formula of signifier by Saussure, how the identity of each object consists just of the series of its differences towards other objects. You know, this classical definition of uh, signifier, Saussure did it that uh, a signifier is, its identity resides only in the network of its differences. Uh, but uh, Brandon's point is simply, but these differences has to be differences from other self-identical objects, because the whole of it cannot just hang in the air. You know, if, for example, I don't know how this goes, I was never good at it, to, uh, how does go this structure of differential opposition, but if, if high is opposed to low, then also you have to, re to refer to low as another immediacy, and so on. And you cannot just have all of it hanging in the air. 
But Hegel, sorry, Brandom again just remains at this point. What he doesn't see is how, again, there are paradoxical objects which are just negation embodied in the sense of they are not simply positive, immediate objects, but they are objects which, they, which in a self-relating way directly embody negation itself. Here dialectic begins. An example. Uh, I will not use my old examples, but and you don't have to agree with it. It's just an example of a logic. This is how, for example, Spinoza, and I'm not a Spinozian, dismisses the usual personal notion of God. For Spinoza, God is another name for nature, for the na rational order of the universe. And uh, the personal notion of God goes at the old wise man with a beard sitting somewhere up there. As Spinoza put it, is just an embodiment, a name for our ignorance. When you reach the limit of your knowledge, there is a domain that you don't know. And the only truth of the notion of personal God is the embodiment of that ignorance. It appears to be something, but it's actually just something that fills in the void. Uh, and then, of course, you have endless series of these examples. For example, uh, you know my stories, for example, in, in, in Marx, my eternal example, how the Asiatic mode of production seems to be one among the modes of production, but it really is just an empty envelope covering all that did not fit other modes of production. You know, Asiatic mode of production is like uh, uh, in that, I always use this example, I'm sorry if you know it, in that, uh, you know, the famous Borges story referred to by Michel Foucault in the beginning of the order, a crazy categorization of dogs, these dogs, those dogs, and at the end, the last subspecies, all the dogs which are not included into this list. You know, this, this paradox of a positive entity whose substantial truth is just negation, it's literally the embodiment of nothing. This is also, for Lacan and for Hegel, a subject. This level of self-relating is something that uh, simply, to put it simply, that Brandom uh, ignores. So now, this is just a general outlook. Now, let's begin at the beginning. Now things will get maybe a little bit more interesting. Uh, uh, Brandom begins his reading of phenomenology, Hegel's phenomenology, with an interpretation of the notion of experience, Erfahrung, the exper what Hegel calls the experience of uh, consciousness. And Hegel's paradoxical claim, here we come to the first of these great renormalizations, simplifications of Hegel, uh, sorry, by Brandom. <coughs> Uh, Hegel claims something crazy and paradoxical, that you have a certain experience of an object, and then no, you perceive a certain object. Experience occurs when you discover the falsity of your idea of object, of your representation of object. But uh, 
Brandom, uh, sorry, Hegel's claim is paradoxical. It is that what changes in an authentic experience is not just your idea of an object, but is this object itself. You know, like as Hegel puts it, when your idea is proven wrong, misleading, with regard to the object whose idea it is, you don't have to change only your idea, but also the object itself. Now, this appears subjectivist madness or whatever. And now I will first tell you how Brandom tries to squeeze out of this, reintroducing a standard realism. He takes a very weird non-Hegelian example. Uh, let's say you have a, a straight stick, you know, then you drown it half into water, and because of all this shitty perspective optical stuff about which I know nothing, the 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 stick will appear broken. Okay, then this is what you let's say immediately see the broken stick. Then you pull it out, and it appears as what it really is: the straight stick. So. This is Brandom's even basic example. Uh, so how does he interpret it? In a very subtle way, but I think it's deeply misleading. His point is that we have, Brandom's point, that we have here three levels, not two levels. We have the stick the way it appears to me at the beginning, which is if it's half in water, it appears as a cracked, broken stick. Then we have my idea of how the stick really is, what in Hegelian terms would have been called the in itself for me. Because if I'm an idiot, I think that the stick really is broken. I know that I only have an appearance of the stick. But, and then we have the way the stick really is in itself. Okay. Brandom claims that uh, what changes in the experience is not the stick in itself, which was all the time the same fucking straight stick, <laughs> but it's just what I took it to be the stick in itself. Uh, for, uh, uh, so that, again, at the beginning, if I was an idiot, I thought, the stick in itself, the way it really is, is also a, a broken stick. When I pull it out, I see that that was just my subjective misperception because of optical loss, whatever, how the, the, the light breaks in water, whatever, but that really this is the stick. But in all this process, the stick in itself remains the way it is. So Brandon's point is that the in itself which changes through experience. It's not the true in itself. The stick is outside the process, all the time out there. It's just the in itself for me, what I took to be the in itself. And uh, maybe another example would be more, uh, more, more uh, practical here. Uh, let's say a certain planet appears to us in a certain way. If you look at it at the telescope, or maybe you can even see it, 
the for us is the way that stupid celestial body appears to us. We are fully aware that this is not how the planet really is. This is just how it appears to us. Okay, through, uh, through good, uh, 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 through closer observations, satellites, and so on, we get an idea of how that planet really is. So we have in our everyday experience already the difference between how something appears to us and how it really is. But let's say that there is now a tremendous new discovery which shows us that even if the planet, of course, it still appears to us as the same planet, it's not really what we took it to be in itself. You get it? It's like we thought it's composed of those metals with some fires uh, inside, whatever. We discover, no, there are no fires inside. It's different metal and so on and so on. What change, changes here is not the immediate appearance of the object. We look at it through telescope, even it's the same. What changes is the in itself of the object, but the way it was for us. We thought this appears like this, it's really like that. Through the experience, we learned, no, the in itself is different. But there is a third in itself, which is the object itself out there. And that one, and that one remains the same. Now, this is, of course, a consistent, naive, uh, this is, of course, the consistent, naive, realist way to perceive things. But what would Hegel have replied here? The first consequence here is that the all the movement is on the side of condition, not the movement of the object, but the movement of condition. We were describing a certain process, like getting to know an object better and better. But you know, all the movement was in our condition. The object appears like this, we presume how it is in itself, and through our experience, the way we presume the object is in itself changes. But in all this, the object, in this case the stupid planet, remains the way it is in itself. And here I think uh, Brandom does something catastrophic and totally non-Hegelian. Uh, he draws here a distinction between impossible and inappropriate. <coughs> ah, sorry. In the sense that, <coughs> how does our experience progress? For example, we examine a certain object. We have an idea of that object. Then, when our conclusions are contradictory of that object, we know that we are wrong, and we try to correct our knowledge. Because, let's say, a stupid example. The object cannot be at the same time, okay, red, blue is not a good example, because we know that colors, at least to the naive modern epistemology, colors are subjective. They don't exist. Uh, objectively. So, uh, uh, but let's say, uh, take anyone. We thought it's composed of these atoms. We discovered there are also other type of atoms which should be there. So, uh, for Brandom, uh, this uh, contradiction can only be 
can only exist in our knowledge. Contradiction means the co-presence in our idea of an object of mutually exclusive properties. When we stumble upon a contradiction, we know that ontologically it is impossible to have an actually existing contradiction, so we have to correct our perception. Again, one of the two choices, if we have incompatible properties, one of, of them has to be false, or maybe both are false and there is a third option or whatever. Uh, so we have here, not really Hegel, but a kind of a Karl Popper, without, uh, without aggressivity, ontology. You know, there is infinite reality out there. We never know how it really is, but we gradually progress towards it through resolving inconsistencies in our knowledge and so on and so on. The key point being that contradictions are only in our knowledge, because I can endorse subjectively incompatible contradictory thoughts. But this cannot exist in reality. In reality, it's impossible for things to be self. Uh, uh, and here is a quote from Brandom. Uh, uh, here, how things objectively are or are in themselves means always already are anyway, in the sense that how they are in themselves swings free of how they are for the subject. The sort of independence is presupposed by their functioning as a normative standard for assessment of appearances. The key word here is normative, because for Brandon, reality is out there the way it is. There is no normativity there. An object cannot be wrong. An object is what it is. Normativity is only in our knowledge. Our knowledge, we can measure it normatively. It cannot be right or wrong. Sorry, it can be right or wrong, our knowledge of an object, but the object itself cannot be uh, right or wrong. For example, throughout history of humanity, people talk about water. While it all the time changes our notion of what water we is in itself. You know, for example, only at a certain point we became, through development of chemistry, aware that water is in H2O, etc. So we are approaching what water is in itself. But when we discover that water is, that the chemical composition of water is H2O, this doesn't mean that at that point, water became H2O. Water always already was this. We just were not aware, aware of this. Uh, here, I think, uh, this is again naive ontology, but I think the whole point of Hegel is to undermine it. How? It's okay, we, you may not agree with Hegel here. I'm just saying that Brandom totally misses the point of Hegel here. Because the basic, absolutely crucial point of Hegel, the ABC of Hegel, is that contradictions are in things themselves. What does this mean here? For example, this is the entire 
trust of Hegel's critique of Kantian antinomies, that when somebody, something is antinomic, specific sense of contradiction in Kant, it cannot, both poles of antinomy cannot be objectively true. It has to be our transcendental illusion, our misperception, and so on. And Hegel uses here a wonderful word that Kant shows a tenderness for the things of this world, as if, you know, let's not press too much on things. Things cannot be self-contradictory. What does Hegel mean here? How to, uh, 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 how to, what does Hegel mean here? Ah, now comes the point. For Hegel, precisely, again, you may disagree with it, but the whole point of Hegel is that the basic feature of, let's call it, dialectical process is that there is a certain normativity gap between what a thing effectively is and what it should have been with regard to its notion in reality itself. Now, this may sound crazy, but uh, let me give you, let me give you, uh, let me give you some simple examples. First, ontologically, as Hegel says, the usual notion of truth is the adequation of our intellect idea to two things, like, I don't know, I claim the car outside this building is blue. This is my idea. It's true if you go out and see the car which is nearest to this building is really blue. But for Hegel, there is another higher form of truth, and precisely I want to claim it's not necessarily an idealist notion in the bad sense. that. But uh, for Hegel, the problem is not just this truth. Does reality fit my subjective ideas? But does reality, uh, but uh, do things, it's not does an idea in my mind fit reality, but does a reality fit its own idea? That there is an inherent normativity. What, what does he mean by this? For example, for Hegel, the problem is not is this a table, but I mean, the problem is not, I have an idea of a table, and oh my god, look, this really is a table. The problem is, is this table really a table? You know, this inker, and for Hegel, and that's, I think he is right here. Even, for example, it may appear ridiculous, but the whole point, first, let's take simple examples. I say simple because obviously there is a normativity there. Hegel's theory of state. It's not simply what a state truly is. But his idea is that the whole history of states, sorry, not states like states of things, but state like Staat in German, like uh, Persian state, Greek state, and so on, that state emerged, to put it very naively, to play a certain role, to fulfill a certain function to organize harmonious functioning of whatever you want, of society, to bring harmony, and so on, and so on. And Hegel's point, almost a Marxist one, is that if you look at the history, each form of the state fell apart because it, it didn't meet, correspond to its own notion. For example, first there were so-called primitive 
but by primitive, they were not so primitive. Uh, the big despotic states like e ancient Egypt and so on, they didn't succeed in introducing social harmony. They fell apart. Then ancient Greek state, they fell apart. Like, uh, the idea is that, you see the point of Hegel here, the very fact that there were in each state antagonisms and tensions means that this normative tension was immanent to the notion of state. It's an irreducible contradiction bet between what the state actually is and what it was supposed to do. Hegel's critique of the market would have been and is the same. Market is destined to organize spontaneously the exchange and so on and so on. Does it really do this? Does it fit its own notion? Now you will say, do we get at the end the ideal state? No. You see, in which simple sense, when our experience changes, the object itself changes. Once people, let's say ancient Greeks, perceived that their state doesn't work, that it's not truly what it is supposed to be, they didn't just change their notion of the state. They changed the state itself. Another reality emerges. This would be, I think, or even in the history of art, whatever you take. And Hegel here does something. Now, you can problematize Hegel, but I think he is right. When he applies the same logic to entire reality, for example, for Hegel, it's crazy reading, but I'm tempted based on latest uh, 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 evolutionary biology to claim it that uh, this is the only way to explain the passage from very simplified way, I'm talking from plants to animals. Plants try to be something, they fail, because <laughs> Hegel, and then through this failure, animals emerge, because Hegel has a wonderful idea here, it's madness, that you know how he defines plants? Animals whose intestines are outside themselves, in the earth, down, and so on, you know. So what I'm saying is that uh, this is the proper dialectical tension. A thing doesn't fit its notion. And now we come to the point. At the end, we don't get finally the rational state, Prussian state uh, of Hegel's time, which fits its notion. No, 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 Hegel is radical here. At the end, the, fi the final point of history, of political history, is that state as such cannot be a true state. So you have to move to another dimension. For Hegel, you have passed to religion. That what, but this is not the last stage. You know, Hegel's pointed what state wanted to be, a harmonious community resolving antagonisms. In its very notion, it cannot be that. So that's the beautiful paradox. If you want a true state, it should no longer be a state. It should be a religious community. Okay, then things get caught up again and again. But, but I think that, again, if you, <coughs> sorry, if you abstract this, uh, <coughs> sorry, if you abstract this dimension from state, this inner tension, which points towards, again, a normativity of reality itself. You know, it's not simply that we expect a state 
to be that, to resolve social antagonisms, etc. In a way, state is there to resolve antagonisms. So when a state fails, it's not simply that our idea of a state fails. The state itself fails. Uh, uh, so this brings us to another, uh, sorry, I got a little bit confused here. Uh, for uh, another problem, uh, the, you have here a wonderful formulation by Brandom when he says that, but he doesn't, again, he's not radical enough here, uh, he introduces the difference between objects, which are what they are independently of our notion, like the stupid stick, and then objects which change when they're for itself or for us, the way they are perceived when it changes. A crucial quote from Brandon. For such a being can change what it is in itself by changing what it is for itself. And he calls this goes only for self-conscious beings. That uh, you cannot simply oppose in a human being what you think you are, the way you perceive yourself, and what you really are. When you change your self-perception in a way that uh, you change the way things really are. But uh, uh, what Brandom does not do here, he should have done this. I'm returning to his stick. Imagine a stick, and that would be, I think, the best metaphor for ideology. Imagine a stick which remains straight in reality, in itself, only in so far as it appears to us as a bent stick. You know that it's being misperceived as what it is not is a condition of its being what it is in itself. So that if you erase the illusion, if you learn what the stick really is in itself, the stick will no longer be what it is in itself. Now, of course, this doesn't hold for, hold for the stupid stick. But it's a perfect definition of, I don't like this term, but I can alienate society. As Mark emphasized again and again, we don't have ideological illusions about society and then the real society. Illusions are the innermost constituent of this society, to put it in naive terms. Uh, commodity fetishism and so on is not something you can see through and then you see how society really is. The moment you get rid of the illusion, the mystification, you lose the reality which was uh, uh, mystified uh, in this way. And is it not that something the same was at work in Freud, in the Freudian notion of symptom, at least in the early naive Freud, where he thought that uh, the symptom only persists as a symptom insofar as its meaning is unknown, as it's mystified. When you fully interpret a system, a symptom, sorry, a symptom, uh, a symptom, uh, disappears. So, okay, things are becoming here more complex and so on, but I want to give you, again, just to make this uh, clear, uh, uh, another, uh, another example that I am repeating all the time of what this contradiction means. Like, 
For Brandom, this would be the best way to condense what I'm saying. Fuck it, I talk a lot. That's life. Uh, for Brandom, now this is crucial. I try to put it in simple terms, but it's crucial. For Brandom, the progress of knowledge consists in resolving contradictions. First in stating contradictions and then resolving them. Like I analyze an object, I discover it's composed of this and this uh, 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 elements, whatever. Then I do another analysis, the result is incompatible with the first one. Or it means I have to move forward. Either choose one of the two versions or a third one, whatever. So again, the progress of knowledge is getting rid of contradictions. Progress, sorry, knowledge progresses through contradiction, but they are just in our knowledge process. For Hegel, it's exactly the opposite. That progress of knowledge is precisely when what you thought it was only a contradiction in your mind, subjective contradiction, appears when you become aware that what you thought is your subjective illusion, appear, that you become aware that this is the feature of the thing itself. Now you will say this is nonsensical mysticism. Of course, the Hegelian notion of contradiction, we don't have time for that. It's a very refined one. It's not simply, uh, 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 I don't know, I can be a man and a woman at the same time, or all this, that the murderer is, uh, or whatever, is a saint at the same time. Uh, although, with many Christian saints, maybe this goes quite well, you know. <coughs> ah, yes, another thing. Now, I, just for a moment, I will come back. Did you tell me this or somebody else? No, I only mentioned Tsipras and uh, that. Uh, did I mention also here? Yes, I did. Yes, sorry. Netanyahu, Tsipras and Netanyahu, yes. Sorry? Yes. That part of, like, Israel is yeah. the eternal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, 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 Jerusalem, sorry. Okay, uh, let's go on. So, uh, let me give you a simple example of this. A classical one that I used about six, seven times in my book, but I think it's a clear one. Uh, that old Adorno idea of society, that we have two basic notions of society. The individualist liberal notion where society appears as secondary. The starting point are individuals. Individuals interact and their, their interaction acquires a certain alienated autonomy in objective reality. So individual interaction and society as an objective trans-individual entity comes Second. And then we have the opposite view. Emile Durkheim was its main protagonist, where society as an objective, trans-subjective system comes first. And individuals are just tiny bits or whatever, something that is predetermined by society. And Adorno asks, it's a too simple example, but just for you to get the logic, Adorno then asks, but how to bring these two together. And he mocks perfectly the easy pseudo-dialectical solution, you know, to say it's neither one or the other. Society is an objective totality, but totality which is kept alive only through in subjective interaction. No, no. Adorno's answer is not some kind of a synthesis. Adorno's answer is a much simpler one. Yes, there is a radical antinomy between these two notions of society. 
and there is no higher unity. But this point is, his point is simply, but this antinomy is what characterizes our society. This antinomy is not simply to be dismissed, and this antinomy, where on the one hand it's blatantly true today, although it's a very naive antinomy, on the one hand we are individualized, we never were so individualized, you know, always your experience count, be what you truly are, and all that bullshit, and so on. I don't want to be, like, uh, I like, more and more I'm for a relation, like, if I look at myself in a mirror, what a stupid, boring guy. I mean, the most refreshing thing for me is to forget that I am what I am, you know what I mean, like, to, to alienate myself from myself. I always found the most disgusting thing imaginable, like be truly yourself. My God, I'm even afraid, that's why I hate psychoanalysis. I mean, you just discover all the shit that is in yourself. No thanks, I want to be alienated, you know. Okay, but let's go on. <coughs> you see the nicety here. What we first experienced, what it appeared to us as our subjective antinomy, my God, is the individualist approach proper to society or the objectivist approach, which is true. When you become aware that, as Hegel put it somewhere in a wonderful way, the problem is its own solution. The antinomy should not be resolved, but simply you resolve it by transposing it into reality itself. And the same thing is developed by Adorno, for example, apropos of the relationship between psychological, psychological level, ideological, psychological, and objective social processes. Adorno again claims that the gap between, Adorno claims that he agrees that you cannot in some phenomenological way develop the notion of objective society out of psychological intentionality interactions, and the, the opposite doesn't go at all. But again, the truth is this antinomy, the truth is this antinomy, uh, is this antinomy uh, itself. Okay, uh, so again, uh, 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 okay, this was the first point I wanted to make, and I would like to go a little bit uh, forward. Now I want to go maybe to what I, the second part, how from this ontological topic of how, of knowledge, how we arrive at reality where you got the basic point of Hegel, move contradictions into the thing itself and the crazy idealist idea which can be read in a materialist way of a certain normative tension, normativity, inscribed into reality itself. Which is why also Hegel rejects this modern contrast between objective reality where things simply are what they are, and our subjectivity where we have normative claims, tensions, and so on and so on. No, normativity is already in reality itself. Uh, 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 then the same tension reproduces itself as already uh, improvised at the improvised at the beginning uh, in notions of uh, in notions of action. How uh, action? So again, uh, now comes yes. Sorry, the truly interesting part. If you allow me to go 
a little bit uh, forward. I will jump to the end, not to lose command. Uh, so for Brandom, the dialectical process is the process of, for, I simplified very much, of forgiveness and reconciliation, like at the end, and I'm now moving back to the beginning, where I said how you intend to do something, it fails, and so on. For Brandom, the Hegelian wager is that at the end you can tell a story of how you can reconcile with your failures, of how through the failures some higher social goal was achieved and you get the reconciliation and so on and so on. Uh, but Brandom does something so absolutely non-Hegelian here. He does two things. Uh, he defines what Hegel calls absolute knowing as an ideal that we can just be approaching. He says, but we are not yet there. We are telling a story, but our story and our world can again trigger some irreconcilable conflicts and so on and so on. And for, for Brandom, the basic Hegelian utopian wager is that in the same way that we retroactively redeemed past generations, like, no, what you were doing is not all nonsense, you served a larger purpose, that future generations will do it to us. This trust into the future. So he openly claimed that, uh, for example, he gives a detailed interpretation of how Hegel opposes uh, the ancient world of its substantial unity, ethical world, and modern world of individualist morality. And then he shows how the Hegelian reconciliation is imagining a new world where the usual bullshit, individualist recon reconciled with society, the two extremes are united, and so on and so on. But then he does something horrible. He claims that Hegel is here announcing, pointing forward to some future ideal form which didn't yet arrive. Quote from Brandom. Unlike the earlier stories, this one, the story about absolute knowing and reconciled society, outlines something that hasn't happened yet, a future development of spirit of which Hegel is the prophet, the making explicit of something already implicit implicit and so on and so on. So the idea is that what Hegel is describing at the end as absolute knowing reconciliation is a vision of a future, future of a futurist society that Hegel is pointing towards the future. I claim this precisely is what Hegel absolutely does not do. On the, and also this, because for Hegel, reconciliation is something much more, if you want, tragic. It's not in the future there will be reconciliation, but reconciliation is a reconciliation with the shit we are in now and here. You know, it's, uh, it's because even, you know what, 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 uh, uh, I have here, sorry, I don't want to bore you with the quotes, but endlessly Hegel repeats this point that 
uh, when she speaks about the reconciliation, for example, this passage, the result is that, is that, and the result, it needs not to wait upon us. It's already by implication as well as full actuality accomplished. So Hegel, the basic premise of Hegel is that what he describes as reconciliation is not some, some big change in future, like now we are not reconciled, we will become reconciled through some... No, for Hegel, reconciliation is to see that it's always this already are, to establish that we are already reconciled. Now, I don't have time to go into this now because it may appear to you that this means some kind of a crazy uh, conformism, like Hegel doesn't want social change, he just preaches reconciliation with the world it is. No, things are much more uh, paradoxical. For Hegel, uh, Hegel here has this uh, unique dialectic whose point is that to really change things paradoxically, you have to presuppose that the change is already here. That at the virtual level, the change already has to happen. This is why Hegel is a Christian, because, you know, this is, I think, the deepest Christian insight. It's not like in Judaism, Messiah will come. No, Messiah did come. The true Messiah, God, Christ. But this does not mean we have to do nothing. This is, I think, the ultimate uh, subtlety of Hegel. Okay, uh, let's not lose time into going in detail how it is. I also think that uh, 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 what Brandom doesn't see is the following thing. His formula of reconciliation is this one. On the one hand, this is the crucial social point, we have the ancient Greek and so on, traditional alienated societies, where a certain ethical order is always presupposed as given. And then you as an individual are faithful or not faithful to this order, but the substantial ethical order is given in advance. Then we have the modern view in which there is no objective normative order prior to our subjective activity. Through our social interaction, we produce, we create this order. And in this sense, we can change it and so on. So the only ultimate reality is our subjective reality of constant change, struggles, and so on. And every objective ethical order is just a kind of a reification, objectivization, the result of our subjective activity. Now, uh, Brandom provides here a nice speculative formulation, nonetheless, where he says that uh, in this postmodern third stage, where we will have final reconciliation, uh, finding and making, finding means traditional societies where they act as if you simply find already an established uh, ethical order, finding and making, making in the sense of we create our ethical order, show up as two sides of one coin, two aspects of one process. Uh, living forward and comprehending back, 
backwards, each both making and finding. Again, uh, the idea is clear. Traditional culture accepts norms as substantially given. They pre-exist us. We just have to find them. Modern culture of alienation reduces norms to an expression of our subjective attitudes. What is needed is a, a synthetic view. Uh, and then I think that now here, here Brandom, I'm so sad I don't have more time, to, but here Brandom is right when he insists that there is a certain tension that remains in Hegelian uh, reconciliation. That's a quote from Brandom. Spirit exists insofar as we make it exist by taking it to exist. He points out here to the fundamental paradox of Lacanian Big Other, which is, and that would be maybe the correct reconciliation. You know, like, as Lacan put it, there is no Big Other. There is no objective normative order given in advance. But nonetheless, for every normative order or symbolic system as such, we cannot simply say we are creating it. For it to function, you know, it's that you produce something only through the illusion that it already exists. That's the core of it. No? You cannot have it both ways. I'm just a free individual, I'm producing. This, this necessity of always already here. Like, let me give you an extremely stupid example. Let's say that you follow a certain political idea. Communism, fascism, whatever you want, I don't care. Uh, of course, you are aware that this idea exists only through your subjective activity. If nobody fights for communism, fascism, whatever, there is no communism, fascism. But nonetheless, when you fight for it, it only works through the illusion that you are fighting for something, which in some sense it is there. The illusion is necessary. You cannot, you cannot cheat here. So again, the point is the status of this illusion. And here, I'm so sorry, again, I don't have time to, to go in it into more detail, but uh, uh, here things get extraordinarily complex and Brandom misses the point. In what sense? Brandom can explain in what sense substantial ethical reality is out there only as the result of our activity. But I claim he doesn't really explain the necessity of this illusion. He just, you know, like, why is it that the only way to do it is to, the only way to achieve, to make something exist, is to act as if it already exists? And uh, uh, I claim that uh, this brings us back to a much more radical level in the sense of uh, it's not enough when we have an alienated substance, like an ethical system, which we perceive as independent of us. It's not enough for us to become aware how we really produced that system and so on. Uh, something much more mysterious has to happen. I don't want to go now into all this in detail, which I designate as the Christian moment. 
where uh, 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 the divine figure, like it's not enough to say we produce objective spirit, but the, uh, the spirit has to be introduced into objective spirit itself, where you have a subject like Jesus Christ, who is objective spirit itself as a subject and so on. Okay, so let's drop this. Uh, things get uh, 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 maybe too complex for this confused talk here. But again, the key point is that this central paradox that you can change, that the real change is not the change of the future, but the change of the past, in a way. Of course, not. I'm not talking about magic. I'm talking about, to put it naively, a new image of what the past was. You know, this idea that, uh, yes, as Marx put it, we have to change reality. But to change it, we have to redefine it, to see it. I'm tempted to say to the first step towards change is a totally different interpretation. Before you change it, reality has to appear to you in a totally different way. In, in this precise, subtle sense, the only way to change things is to perceive, assume them as already changed. Let me give you here an example of feminism. It's not simply to say women were oppressed and then they started to liberate themselves. No, something crucial had to happen before. The problem before modernity was not just that women were oppressed, but that they didn't even experience their being as oppressed. You know, the first step in feminist struggle is not to fight oppression, but to even become aware of the oppression. And that's where the real change happens. This would be Hegel's insight. The real change is when you say, fuck it, no, I'm not by nature woman as part of some uh, uh, holistic yin-yang by nature, the dark element, feminine element. You have to change the entire story. Even a Hegelian Marxist like Herbert Marcuse pointed this in a wonderful way when he said that uh, Freedom is a condition of liberation. In the sense that you must already, in a certain way, be free in order to fight for liberation. You know, that's, the, that's the, this subtle point. Again, back to feminism. This is the crucial point, and it's not easy at all. This point of uh, not just this, you have, of course, in already in traditional times, these crazy women, witches who were free outside order. But you know, this, let's call it a, a woman who becomes shocked at the injustice of that and so on. This is not just an insight. The very entity of being a woman changes radically once you become aware of this, that it's not, uh, uh, that it's not, uh, uh, it's not natural that you are oppressed and so on and so on. This is the true change. That, you know, the whole history appears in a new way. It's no longer the history of progress, but the history of oppression of women. And it's the same for racism and so on. You don't just rebel. Okay, slaves did rebel. But 
It's not a great, the, the point was when they started to rebel on behalf of their, whatever you call it, freedom, human rights, and so on, which means that you get a radical rewriting of the past. Things have to change symbolic, and I will give you maybe another example here, a very naive one from my not great dissident, but this gap that I'm talking about. This fascinated me all the time in late communist society, and all the time I'm asking my friends the same question. Like, okay, communism fell down at that point. Berlin Wall, Ceausescu fled on a helicopter, but when did you know that the game is over, really? How much, be because at a certain point, this is for me the most mysterious point of it. Even while the system still goes on and rules, in a way, everyone knows that the game is over. I remember, for example, I report on this in some of my early books, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, Richard Kapuczynski, the great Polish uh, 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 political journalist. He was in Iran when Shah was overthrown, and he tells a wonderful story how there were conflicts, demonstrations, and then at a certain crossing in Tehran, something happened. People were gathering to demonstrate, police came, and the policeman stepped forward and started to shout at the person who was on the head of the demonstrators, disperse, enough fun, disperse. The man didn't move. The policeman shouted again, the man didn't move. Embarrassed, the policeman turned around and left. And even if this didn't really happen, but the fascinating thing is that in a couple of hours, all Tehran, so he claims, was talking about this, and in a way, even with a minute, the battles went on for half a year, but in some sense, everyone knew the game is over. In some sense, even those in power, still in power, knew. And again, this fascinates me so much. When did this moment happen? You know, this is what I'm talking about, that uh, this almost mystical moment, like shift in the symbolic order, when you learn that, that things are over, before they are, and in a way, the game is over. And again, Hegel is fully, fully aware of it, of this. This gap is crucial, that you don't win directly in the sense of fighting and we win. You win by, paradoxically, when you establish through this kind of a magic moment that you've already won. Oh, we are now just fighting second. Admit it, the game is over, you know. And I wonder how this happened, although all things about the limits of liberation should be taken into account here. Like, uh, at one point in South Africa did the apartheid guys this uh, uh, established, because it was a wonderful moment. I admire it. You know, I remember reading newspapers, following it. At a certain moment, even when he was still in jail. And here Mandela was great in spite of all compromises he had to make later, you know? This magic moment when everyone knew the way he was treated, Mandela won, it's over. I remember how even where, who was before the clerk, Bota, or who was the previous, still racist, but he invited Mandela for a talk. 
when Mandela was still in prison. And the, the, the journalist report on the talk were very mysterious. Mandela stepped out and said, no, we didn't talk about politics. We are just two old wise men who, has an, who had a nice chat and so on. It was a wonderful understatement of the year, you know. But you see what I'm saying? Everybody knew uh, the game is over, you know. And this would be for me, if you ask me, a proper atheist Christian politics. No, it's not just, oh, we are fighting, maybe we will be in it. Ha-ha, <laughs> the game is over, you just don't know it, you know. Although, in what sense the game is over, I don't know, because things are getting even worse. What I learned yesterday from Turkey, you know what I was telling you before this totally scandalous Turkish policy. I'm more and more convinced, I repeat my line from yesterday, the beginning, that all this war and terror, the problem is not that it's too militaristic, let's not bomb. It's not a serious war at all. It's just a cover-up for two different conflicts. Shia Sunni conflict and Russia Western conflict. And it's like, they don't really mean it. Like, as many journalists noted up, put pressure on Syria and Saudi Arabia and without any bombing, ISIS disappears in two, three months to the utmost. I'm really worried that maybe the game is over, but in a much darker sense, you know that, in the opposite sense. <coughs> Sorry, maybe. I didn't want to stop you because it was, going, it was amazing today. No, uh, fuck it. It was too simple. I, I promise you the same thing as usual. So, I wasn't satisfied. I simplified. I got lost at the end. Again, who is the boss? By boss, I mean something very... Fuck you, Obviously. up yours. By boss, I mean something very democratic. The one who has... Emails. Ah, uh, still Julia. Julia is here for another couple of weeks. Okay, then I promise that at least this part, if you are interested, I will email to her and you can, to Julia, and you will get from her this text. Because at the, go, at the end I got lost when things no, go... go. Who, who are you to say? No you think that we are in Islam? You think that I am Mohammed and you are Kadia? No, seriously, this is a great part of Islam. You know that it's inherent to Islam that a man tells the truth, but it becomes truth only through woman's mediation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, I, but not in my Christian universe. Are you going to take questions today or are you saving it for tomorrow? I save it for tomorrow, fuck life. Uh, okay, well, thanks very much. No, thank you for your patience, and tomorrow I will try to do it in a more... But listen, I talk too much, so please, this is not an empty rhetorical claim. Uh, really not. It's not, this my old joke, uh, a claim to be rejected. Please, the only way to do it with me is, if you want to ask something, don't wait for the end, simply. There's no end. <laughs> you are getting... <laughs> Sorry? We can, perfect. We can, we can. But uh, 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 my point is nonetheless that, you know, you see, now I will tell you something, just a stupid fact. You gave me the idea. You know, the best argument against feminine liberation is this one that a nice conservative told me. Women were really oppressed, but they are unfair. If we confess to women that we oppress them, they will take advantage of this in an unfair way, you know. This is the ugliest, disgusting version that I can imagine. Okay. Anyway, so, we'll come back tomorrow. I, you, I hope you got my point. That
the yeah, time plus a weak guy scared like shit of women no? and <laughs> all that remains to me is to act out these stupid jokes okay tomorrow we go to the end in Kegel we can begin by debate okay ah you are the one yeah. secret police who was, who was doing it yes I have to sorry let's do it